Morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know, the the elders, for good reason, and I appreciate it, uh, pick the lesson topics for those of us who aren't elders to get up here and maybe say the things they don't want to say. <laughs> no, that's not what it is. But they do pick the, the topics and... I, I find that's good because if I've got to pick my own as we want to do, we always pick our favourites and we pick the things that we are comfortable talking about and want to talk about and some things don't get discussed. Right? Um, but I'm assuming that there's licence right, the topics that, that you give us that we can you know, choose our own adventure to some degree. I'm about to find out today how, how much this licence stretches. The title of the topic that, that I've been asked to speak on this morning is what does it look like to be a servant of God? As you probably guessed from the song that we just sang, what does it look like to be a servant slash slave of God? And so when I was starting to think about this topic, trying to get this lesson together and get prepared, there's a lot of places you can go with that, right? There's a lot of things that servants do that... It, you could look like being a servant of God. Being a servant looks a lot like a lot of different things. There's many different ways to serve God. He's got many different types of servants. And as with many any other topic, the more you think about it and the more you start you know, digging into the word, it becomes more and more difficult to choose, oh, should I talk about that? Should I include that? Should I leave that out? Should I talk about this? And so the 20-minute lesson can turn easily into a 30-minute, a 40-minute, 60-minute. I'm not looking at anybody when I say that. So let's see how we go. I promise it won't be super long. I have one slide, if that helps you. Only one slide. And I'm going to start with something that might seem completely out of context, but uh, give me some time to explain. George has removed the copyright symbol at the bottom of this. This this is not my work. I'm going to tell you up front. This is what is known as the golden circle. Uh, And some of you may know the guy who uh, coined it or invented it as Simon Sinek, who's a a business coach type person. Those in the business world maybe have heard of Simon Sinek. This is his, so I'm not not taking any, any credit for that. He calls this the golden circle. And I was at a... uh, two-day work conference later on this week and this was one of the things that uh, was presented to us. Um, and so when I saw it, I was like, oh, I think I need to change my lesson. I've been heading in the wrong direction. Let me just run it through and, and please go, go and look it up afterwards because I may butcher it and not do it as well as, uh, explain it quite as well as he does. But this, in the business world, he says... Most businesses, most people, they know what they do. They know what they do. Whatever it is that their business does, they make stuff, they, whatever it is that they do, they know what it is that they do. Then he says most of them know how they do it, how they do what they do. They, they, they've got processes, they've been doing it for a while, they know how it is they do what they do. But then he says very few businesses know why they do what they do. Why? And he says working from outside to inside is bad. 
it gets vaguer and vaguer <laughs> the further in you go from the what to the how to the why. And he suggests for companies, and not also for companies, for individuals, to inspire other people to improve overall, he says we need to learn to think, act and communicate from the inside out. From the why to the how to the what. The why is the most crucial part. And why? Because the why defines our what. In other words, if you figure out why and you get that right, then the how and the what are much easier to work out and much more effective. If you know why you're doing what you're doing, it helps everything, right? Start with the why, not with the what or the how. And despite the very little I know about business and running one, I certainly know very little And frankly, that's not important. That's not what we're here to do. I'm not here to try to get you to run your businesses better. The general idea he has here is true. When I thought about it, when I was thinking about this lesson, this lesson I was preparing was a, what does it look like? And I was starting with the what. And I was like, that's not the right place to start. We need to get there, but it's not the right place to start. Our words and our actions, when we reflect upon them, they can be traced back to a why. And sometimes that why is not good. Sometimes it is good. But the things that we do, the the way that we act, the things that we say are based on the things that we believe, our why. The things that we hold to be true affect what we do and what we say. And it's not because Simon Sinek says it is true. Right. The reason I think he's correct is because it reflects the truth of what God says about human nature. Right? He's discovered something that he thinks is true about human nature and I know why it's true. It's because God said it was well before Simon did. Matthew 15, Jesus rebukes the scribes and Pharisees. He says this, he links them to Isaiah's prophecy. He says, Isaiah prophesied correctly of you saying, this people draws near to me with their mouth and honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their focus was on the what and the how, while neglecting the why, the heart. And Jesus said that's fatal. You neglect the why, you neglect the heart, the stuff on the outside means very little. Being careful what they did, or at least in the view of others, And making sure how they did it, that it was done to the, you know, tithing the mint and coming and dill and and all those things Jesus talked to them about. He tells them it was based on the why of self-righteousness and the desire for power and praise. That was their why. It wasn't because they wanted to serve God. It was self-righteousness, power, praise from others. That was their why. Jesus goes on later in that same chapter And he says, the things which come out of the mouth, they come from the heart. And that is what defiles the man. Those in the midweek groups, we looked at that not not that long ago, right? It's not the things that go in, it's the things that come out of the heart. The why. If you don't get your why, your heart, 
the things that you believe in. If you don't get that right, it will result in ruining how and what you do. But on the flip side, if you do care firstly about what's in your heart, about the why, if it's based on truth and love, and then it will have an inevitable effect for good on how and what you do. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 12:35. He says, A good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings out good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings out evil things. And so here's where I say those words that make you nervous that I wasn't joking about the 60 minute. I say all that to say this. In dealing with the question, what does it look like to be a servant of God? That's starting from the outside. And instead, in order to answer the question, let's start at the inside of the circle. Why am I? Why are you? Why should we be a servant of God? Why? Now, on one hand, it may not seem to make much sense. Why does God need people to serve him? Does he? Does God need us to serve him? If you've got your Bibles or devices, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, in 20, verse 22, this is Paul in Athens, remember? And he's been walking around the city, seeing all the idols and temples and everything to all these gods, and he, he gets up and it's his turn. It says this, verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Sure you've heard that before. But Paul makes this very plain, right? Very plain. God doesn't need anything from us. You and I can't give God anything that he is lacking. He doesn't need us to serve him. We can't serve him by giving him anything that he's lacking. But he calls us to serve him. He calls us to serve him because in doing so, we realise and acknowledge two things that Paul mentions here in this passage. The first thing that we realise when we serve God is we realise who God is. We realise who God is. Paul says he is 
the one and only God who made everything, holds everything together. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He gives life to everything. He's our creator, our designer, and he seeks our good always. When we serve him, we recognise that. And in serving him, the second thing we recognise is we realise who God is and then we realise who we are, who, who I am. Paul says here, we live, move and only even exist because he chose to do that. I had no say in that. You had no say in that. God causes all things to live, move and even exist because he chooses to. We are God's creation. We are made to be in relationship with him. But we are the clay and he is the potter. And when we serve God, we realise who we are and who he is. If you remember back to a lesson I did, sponsored by Jeep perhaps, you may remember on freedom. You might recall we only actually have two choices, right? We're either a slave to sin and self Or when Christ sets us free from sin, we become slaves or servants to God and righteousness, right? Our two choices are we are serving somebody, someone. Our freedom is determined by the one that we are serving. We don't avoid serving. It's either sin and self or it's God and righteousness. You are a servant. Deal with it. Who are you going to serve, right? That's, That's Paul's point. Choose. And remember the webcam that I set free? Once it was no longer fulfilling its purpose, its freedom was actually an illusion, right? It wasn't really free. It was no longer fulfilling its purpose. And so it is that God calls us to serve him, not for his benefit, but because it's who we are. It's who we are. It's who you are. It's who God made you to be. Incidentally, I think this same principle holds true with prayer. If you want to think about a link with this, does God need us to pray? He knows and he tells us he knows what we need before we even ask him, right? He knows what we're going to say. He knows what we need. So in principle, we don't really need to ask, right? Why pray? But he has told us to ask him, and it's not for his benefit, so it must be for ours. In part, prayer is also a realisation of who God is and who we are, that he is the giver of all good things, we are fully reliant on him, and in this, at least partially, We realise this when we approach him in prayer, right? Now, sometimes it's not easy to hear that you were made to be a servant. You were made to serve. I don't like hearing that sometimes, right? Someone once said, most people wish to serve God, but in an advisory capacity only, 
That sounds much, much more palatable, right? God, I'll serve you, but, you know, in the ways that I want to, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what's appropriate and what isn't, and when I will and when I won't. We can tend to think maybe that considering ourselves as someone who was made to serve God somehow belittles us, somehow makes us less than we are or less than we could be. Let me say three things about that. The first thing is that's true. True insofar as when we compare ourselves to the eternal God, we don't stack up real high. We don't stack up at all, really. We're kidding ourselves if we think that there's even a comparison to be made at all, right? Let's be honest. The second thing is, it is because we are made in the image of God by his express design and his express purpose that makes us special. Because he made us the way he made us. If we choose to serve him and to fulfil our purpose, we get adopted into his family forever. Where else would you want to be, right? And the third thing is we have nothing to fear. If we become someone's servant, right, if you think about it, We're hesitant to become someone's servant because we're putting ourselves under the command of somebody else, right? Someone else is making the decisions. And what if that master abuses their power? What if they don't treat us right? What if they ask us to do something that we don't want to do? What if, what if, what if? We have nothing to fear. Our master is also our father, who loves us perfectly and he just asks us to trust him. I made you. Trust me. So in answering the why, how does that help us with the how and the what? How do we serve God? What what does being a servant of God look like? For the past couple of months, teaching the, the youth and young adult class, we've been looking at Jesus' parables, going through some of his parables. And those, obviously, in the midweek study, you'll know we started doing that in the last couple of weeks as well, uh, in the midweek studies. So since I haven't mastered the art of being in two places at once and the youth are in with you guys today, we're going to look at a parable. And I think it helps in answering these questions. You want to turn to Luke chapter 17. Seven to ten. Jesus speaks this parable to his disciples and he says this, starting in verse seven, And which of you, having a servant ploughing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, gird yourself, serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and then afterwards you can eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. 
It's a tough parable. Hard to hear, isn't it? Some of that. According to the first verse there, this servant's job, he had to plough, he had to tend the sheep, he had to make the dinner. And then he had to probably get up the next day and tend the sheep and plough and make the dinner. Do it all over again. Kind of sounds a bit like some of our jobs and lives, right? We do things over and over again. We work the job, we do this, we do that. And then we get up the next day and we do it again. We do it again. And my guess is that over time, his daily responsibilities became routine and his tasks weren't that thrilling. And let's state the obvious sometimes, and maybe I should say often, serving isn't very sensational, is it? It's not. It's not sensational. It involves exertion. It often exacts a price. It's hard. And so one of the hows of serving God is just to show up every day. Do whatever it is that needs to be done and then do it again the next day and the next day. The servant moves from the outdoors to the indoors, from day to evening and from hard labour to home life. A servant serves whenever, wherever, for whomever, doing whatever he's asked to do. This means that when we get up, we serve our family. When we go to work, we serve our boss and co-workers. When we come home, we serve our family. When we go out into the community, we serve them. When we come to meet with each other, we serve each other. There's no break from being a servant. There's really no way around it. When we follow Christ, we're saying goodbye to self and taking up service. Can't sugarcoat it. A man called Fred Craddock once said, to give my life for Christ appears glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. And then he goes on to tell a story about a wealthy man who came to church one day and he gave the elders a cheque for $50,000 and said, here, I want the church to have this to do some good. And the elder looked at it and he handed it back to the man and he said, go cash it in for some change. 50 cent pieces, $1 coins. And then I want you to spend your life spending those 50 cents here, a dollar there. And the man was flustered and said, but but that'll take the rest of my life. And the elder said, that's the point. We also see in this parable that service is not a way for accruing a debt to those that we serve. It's not even a way to get gratitude. Right? After going out, working from sun up to sundown, the servants no doubt tired, a word of appreciation would mean so much maybe. Verse 9, does this master even thank him? I think not, says Jesus. 
The idea is if the master expresses gratitude, it could be construed as a debt that somehow must be settled to even the score. We can fall into the trap of thinking that God somehow owes us for all that we have done for him or are doing for him. The Pharisees believe that their deeds put God in their debt. This kind of thinking gets us into deep trouble because God does not owe us anything. And when we serve God by serving others, we can often serve with way too many expectations, right? And we get frustrated and we get angry and we get mad and we say, I'm never serving again. No one even said thank you. It didn't go the way I thought it would go. I did all this work and no one even cared. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't think it's wrong to show appreciation when someone is serving. It's a good thing to do. What I'm saying is it's dangerous to expect affirmation. It's wrong for us to expect acknowledgement and make that the motivation for our service. That's our why. It should not be gratitude and thanks and praise. Jesus concludes this little parable with some corrective words to those of us who want to know what serving will cost us and how it will benefit us. You see, if the benefits outweigh the costs, if, if I can fit it into my schedule, then maybe I'll do a little bit of service for God. If I weigh it up and I think, oh, it might be worth it, and I, I can squeeze it in. This last verse helps us see what being a servant is all about. A servant's heart is, is intent upon and his will is bound to the will and wishes of another. If I am your servant, what you say goes. Instead of having a feeling of entitlement, Jesus says we need to see ourselves as, and my translation here is unprofitable servants. Some translations say unworthy servants. Please forgive my Greek pronunciation here, David. The Greek word there that is unworthy or unprofitable is akrios. Combining the negative, the a, a at the front is the negative with kria, forgive that, meaning needed or necessary. So you get this idea, as he says, we've only done what our duty is, it wasn't necessary unnecessary, unneeded, nothing above what was required, I've I've done my duty. I've done only what I was asked to do, nothing more. A man by the name of Lorne Sanny was once asked, how can we really know when we have the attitude of servant? His answer was to the point and very profound. This is what he said, he said, You know you're a servant by how you act when you're treated like one. You know you're a servant by how you act when you're treated like one. When you're treated like a servant, do you get offended? When someone forgets to say thanks, do you get indignant? Do you think you're worthy of recognition? Have you earned it? This question reveals the why 
behind your service, right? If you want to know what your why is, ask yourself this question. We're wrapping up. Monday this past week, yeah, Monday this past week, I attended my first elders, deacons and ministry team meeting this Monday. I didn't know exactly what to expect. This is the first one I've been to, been there before. So I didn't wear any shoes. Honest, you can ask James, he'll tell you. I didn't wear any shoes because I thought at least they'll, surely there's some foot washing or something going on in this group. I was ready. Uh, perhaps there might have been, but Peter and uh, Steve were both away, so I'm, I'm assuming they were the chief foot washers and because they weren't there, it didn't happen. All jokes aside, how we serve others and what it looks like is going to be different, right? It's going to be different depending on who we are. Sure, there's quote-unquote official roles in the church, but there is no one who is not made for service. No one who hasn't been made for service. Our why is all the same. We all have the same why. We have different hows, different whats, but all the same why. And what it looks like is going to be different upon where we are. God's placed each one of us where we are. He's gifted each one of us according to his purposes. But if we are willing to serve, there can always be opportunities found around us. God will always give you things to do if you're willing. My encouragement this morning is this, from 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Thank you.